My name is Josh. I'm really glad you're here today, especially if you are a guest. And I invite you, if you would, to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy in the New Testament. There's no shame in using your table of contents uh, at the front if you are not familiar with your Bibles. Uh, 1 Timothy is near the end. If you find the book of Hebrews, go back just a teeny bit and you'll get there. Uh, We are in week three of our Advent series called Christmas is Creed. And we are spending uh, these weeks considering the fact that Christmas, uh, as Paul mentioned a moment ago, is not merely a time of celebration for celebration's sake. Christmas is not merely about giving out good vibes or exchanging gifts or rocking around the Christmas tree, although you should absolutely do all of those things according to your conscience as your conscience permits. Uh, Do some rocking around the Christmas tree. But Christmas is more than just a celebration. It's also an affirmation. Christmas is an affirmation of deep truths that are cosmically significant. At Christmas, we remember the world-tilting, cosmos-altering reality that God became a man. God became a man. And that's a very simple statement, but it's absolutely laden. It's pregnant with complex significance, and we've been exploring that significance over the last couple of weeks, asking the question and seeking to answer from the Scriptures, what did it mean for God to come as a man in Jesus Christ? And this morning, we're going to take up the issue of Christ's work as a man, as our mediator this morning, and we are going to focus on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. But we're going to read verses 1 through 7 so that we can get the context. So let me invite you, if you're able and willing, please stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for Jesus Christ and His revelation of himself, his divine self-disclosure to his people. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This then is the reading of the holy, inspired, sufficient Word of God. Surely the grass withers and the flower falls, but not the Word of God. No, the Word of God endures forever. And the one who has ears to hear, let him hear it. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you know, my wife Katie and I, we have four children. And they're sort of packed closely together in age. The gap between my eldest child and my youngest child is just a whisker under two years. So four kids all within two years of each other. And that is, it's a ton of fun, really, in a lot of ways. When they play together, they're kind of into the same stuff all at the same time. And it creates a really great, a really great situation most of the time, most of the time. There's other times uh, when it's less fun because sometimes the, the alchemy, the equation of our household works something like this. 
four kids plus time plus feelings plus Christmas break equals violence. All right? Every once in a while, every once in a while things go bad. We've had, uh, you know, Christmas break started for us on Thursday. Uh, and already in the Hughes house, we've had a few dust-ups, a couple of kerfuffles, maybe a Donnybrook or two. And uh, Katie have, and I have found ourselves, my wife and I, we found ourselves in a familiar position, having to step into a role that's become very familiar to us over the last few years, and that is the role of mediator. Mediator. Mediators are really important. My kids often need one, and you and I need one as well. What's a mediator? A mediator is a person who stands between two parties in conflict, in conflict and brings them together. It's the person who steps into a relational estrangement and effects reconciliation. Mediator. And the word translated mediator in verse 5 uh, was used in ancient texts for a person who would serve as a legal arbiter or as a business negotiator in a transaction. And in, this, in the context of what Paul is writing, the Apostle Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, who is a young church leader, and he is exhorting him personally and the church he's leading toward evangelistic prayer, to pray for people to come to a knowledge of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And the basis that he gives for that prayer, the basis that we have to pray such prayers, is the fact that there is one God and one mediator, one go-between for God and people, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Paul reminds Timothy that Jesus Christ is utterly unique. Jesus is without rival or equal or successor. And contrary to the pluralistic spirit of our age, all roads do not, in fact, lead to God. There's only one way to get there. It was true in Paul's day. It's true today. And that is through the mediator, Jesus Christ. He is fully God and fully man. And as such, he is, he is uniquely able to represent God to man and man to God. Jesus Christ came to be, or came as a man to be the mediator for humanity. That's our big idea this morning. That's what I want us to see as we walk through this text together. Jesus came as a man to be the mediator for humanity. And what I want to do in our time together is to convince you of why this reality should lead you to worship. Why it should lead you to deep and abiding joy in this Christmas season. And I want to do that by taking us through sort of three movements. First, I want you to see that we need a mediator. Why we need a mediator to begin with. And then I want you to see why we need a mediator to live for us. And finally, why we need a mediator to die for us. That's where we're headed this morning, Lord willing. So the first thing I want us to see is we need a mediator. If you would turn back in your Bibles to Job chapter 9, I want us to see something. Before we talk about what it meant for Jesus to be our mediator, I want to show you why it is we need a mediator so desperately. You see, Jesus does you no good if you don't really need him all that much, right? How much you are going to respond with joy to a gift is going to be relative to how much you need that gift, right? So you could give me the nicest cat-scratching post imaginable as a Christmas gift, right? The nicest one that's available. It's like bejeweled. It's got diamonds on it. It's made by a craftsman out of the finest wood and whatever else goes on a cat-scratching post. But that's not going to be good news to me because I don't have a cat, all right? I find cats to be kind of mean, 
and I'm allergic to them, all right? And, and listen, please, please don't email me. I'm sure your cat is delightful. I'm sure if I could just spend five minutes with your cat, it would totally turn me around on the issue. We'll just stipulate that up front, okay? For me personally, I'm more of a dog guy. You know the difference between a cat and a dog, right? If you, uh, you rub a dog's uh, head, it says, oh, man, you must be God. And if you rub a cat's head, it says, oh, man, I must be God. So that's the difference. There you go. That's not in 1 Timothy. That was, that was free. <laughs> you can give me an amazing cat-scratching post, but I don't need that. That's not going to be good news to me. I'm going to open that up and say, well, that's, that's really nice. Thank you. And the mediation of Jesus isn't a present that you unwrap and say, well, that's nice. No, Jesus, the mediator, isn't a nicety. It's a necessity. You need it. Now, I want you to see this in the experience of a man named Job. Job was a well-to-do, well-off patriarch who lived uh, very early in history, probably around the time in the middle of the book of Genesis. He was a patriarch. And if you have any familiarity with the Bible, you know that Job is well-known and significant in the Bible for the ways in which he suffered. Job suffered mightily. God allowed a severe test of affliction to come into Job's life. In a matter of moments, Job loses his children, he loses his fortune, he loses his health, his body is afflicted with sores so that he takes a broken piece of pottery to scratch the sores that ravaged his body. And as he's trying to navigate this, his wife tells him, you know what, Job, the best thing you could do right now is to curse God and die. But then his boys show up, his friends come, and things start to get better, right? No, things get worse Because his friends start to try to connect the dots for Job between his life and his circumstances, between his holiness or lack of holiness and the suffering that he's experiencing. In chapter 8, Job's friend Bildad says to him that, listen, Job, God doesn't pervert justice, and so that if Job is pure and upright, then God would surely deliver him from all of this. The meaning is, is not so subtle. He's saying to Job, you're not good people, clearly, Job. Or you wouldn't be suffering like this. And listen to what Job says in Job chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. <coughs> then Job answered and said, he answers Bildad's statement, and he says, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Now skip down to verse 32. For he, God, he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. The pain of Job's soul that he's experiencing in the midst of this suffering, it's pushing forward this question. Who can sort out my position before God? Before God Almighty? There's this unbridgeable gap that exists Between us, and there's no arbiter, there's no conciliator, there's no one who can stand in the gap between him and me. He's God and I'm not, and what am I supposed to do with that? It's the ache that gnaws at us when we're afflicted. When our conscience condemns us, when we sin and when we suffer, God, what are we supposed to do with this chasm that's fixed between us? Job needed a mediator. And you and I need a mediator too. And this is so important because all the way back in the time of the patriarchs, 
thousands and thousands of years ago, Job is dialing into this problem. He's, he's asking the question that every philosophy, every religion, every system of belief in the world is trying to deal with. They're trying to deal with this gap that exists between the ideal and the real. The ideal is this world out there that our souls know exists. Christians call it God. Plato and, and other uh, Greek philosophers called it the forms. It's the world for which we're made and to which we aspire. It's that perfect world that's above us. But then there's the, the real, the world that we experience day in and day out. It's characterized by decay and brokenness. And our souls know that there's this gap that's fixed and it haunts us. And every religion, every philosophy is trying to deal with this gap between the ideal and the real. And so some deal with it by trying to bring the ideal down to make it not quite so ideal. So the Greek gods did this in Greek mythology. Gods were gods, but they had flaws, right? Poseidon had a, a problem with anger. Zeus was a womanizer. Athena lacked compassion. So the gods are great. They're gods, but they're really not that different from us. See, bring the ideal down. The other way that philosophies try to deal with this is to raise up the real, to elevate the real to a place that our experiences just can't sustain. So Islam teaches that you get to paradise, you achieve passage from the real to the ideal through giving effort. Your faith with your good deeds helps you ascend from the real to the ideal. A humanist says that all we need is just a little bit more enlightenment, a little bit more knowledge. We need to evolve a little bit more and we'll be able to bridge this gap. Some atheistic philosophies try to claim that the ideal world doesn't exist. All there is is the real. All there is is here. What we see and, and touch, taste, feel, put our hands on. This world is all there is. But that, that ultimately is an unsatisfying answer to the question. Because if there's no ideal, then there's, there's no objective truth. There's no objective morality. And that's a truth that very few atheists that I've ever met or heard are willing to be that honest. And it also doesn't work because in the post-Christian world, it remains God-haunted. Our souls know that this ideal exists. One atheist writer named Julian Barnes has written, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This gap is fixed, and everyone is trying to deal with this gap like Job. And here's what Christianity does. This is part of what makes Christianity utterly unique compared to every other philosophy in the world. Christianity sets the ideal as high as it can possibly be. It says, There is a God who made everything good, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, who by no means will pardon the guilty. He is perfect in his judgments. And then it sets the real as low as it can possibly be. As low as it can possibly be. Humans are sinful and broken. You know what God said in Genesis chapter 6 before the flood? He says, how great, he saw how great the wickedness of the human race had been on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. That's God's assessment of sinful humanity. Christianity sets the ideal as high as it can possibly be and the real as low as it can possibly be. And this gap gets bridged by God himself, leaving the ideal, and coming down and entering into the real. Coming as a man, as 
our mediator. Jesus steps down between the two parties that are separated by sin, a holy God and sinful humanity, and he brings about a restored relationship between them. He becomes like us to save us, to be the mediator that we need. Oh, you need a mediator. You need someone to bring you to God. Jesus came as a man to be our mediator, to live for us and to die for us. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking. First, we need a mediator to live for us. We need a mediator to live for us. And we need that because of the mess that we've made of our own lives. We've made a mess of what God has given to us. You know, if you ask most Christians what they need most from God, what do we come to God to get primarily? Most people will say forgiveness. Most people will say forgiveness. And that's, that's true, but it doesn't quite go far enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient. We need something more than that. We need righteousness. We need righteousness. Some people will define justification, the act where God saves us, as, as uh, just as if I never sinned. Have you ever heard that? Well, that's part of it, but that doesn't quite go far enough. We actually need more than for God to view us just as though we've never sinned. We need God to view us just as if we'd always obeyed fully and perfectly. We don't just need forgiveness. We need righteousness. And we need a man who is righteous to be our mediator because we're not righteous. We're sinners from way back. The sin problem of every person doesn't begin the first time that you commit a sin, right? It starts way before that. Romans 5 tells us where it begins. Romans 5, verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul's talking about Adam. Adam, our first father, who stands at the, at the bottom of the root of all of our family trees. He is our first father. And as the first man, he is our representative head. He represents all of humanity. He's placed in the garden by God, and he's given the opportunity to obey or not obey. He's given the ability to choose obedience or to choose sin. And Adam chooses sin. And as a result, Paul is saying, We have inherited his sin nature. We all get full credit for Adam's rebellion against God. And our souls, we we don't like this very much. We kick against this idea. We have this this individualist bent that pushes against it, but we see how this works in other realms. When the one blows it and the many suffer the consequences, we see this in other realms. I, I had a great illustration of this a few weeks ago. It was a Saturday afternoon. I'm sitting on my couch screaming, we'll call it screaming, as uh, the FSU linebacker, Matthew Thomas, intercepts the Florida quarterback there at Florida Field, runs the ball back to the one-yard line. He thinks he scored a touchdown, and so he's, in his celebration, he's trying to dig up some of the sod from Florida's field, which gets him a a penalty, although I think it was still a great idea. Um, And what happens? A flag is thrown, and the the ball moves from the one-yard line all the way back to the 15-yard line. Who's bearing the penalty of what he did? The entire team. The whole team bears the penalty. One player commits the foul, the whole team gets penalized. That's how sin works. We used to teach children 
to read years ago. The letter A is for Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And consequently, no one possesses in themselves a righteousness that's sufficient to meet God's standard, however righteous they might look. What did Jesus say? He said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The most righteous, holiest people, the people who obeyed the law best in that day, your righteousness has to exceed even theirs. He's saying the most righteous person you know, think of that person right now, they aren't righteous enough to meet God's standard. You need a perfect righteousness. On Thursday afternoon this week, R.C. Sproul, the eminent theologian and pastor and apologist and defender of the Reformed tradition, went home to be with the Lord. And R.C. Sproul is a, he's a massive figure in my life, in my development. And if you've never read one of R.C. Sproul's books, do yourself a favor this Christmas. Buy yourself one as a gift and read it over Christmas. Your soul will be glad that you did. And I want to borrow one of R.C. Sproul's illustrations to show you this need for righteousness. Just imagine with me for a moment. This is R.C. Sproul's illustration. Imagine here on the end of the stage right here stands a man, and it's Hitler, okay? Imagine Hitler is standing here. Now on the other side of the stage over here, imagine there's another man standing, and it's Jesus Christ, okay? Imagine Jesus is here, Hitler's over here. And this distance, this span between them, represents a continuum, a continuum of righteousness. The worst guy you can imagine and the most righteous man who ever lived in human history. Okay, you visualizing this? Sproul liked to bring people up on the stage, but I didn't want to make one of you be Hitler. That seemed mean, so I didn't want to do that. So you're seeing this continuum. Now imagine a third man walks up on the stage, and it's the Apostle Paul. Paul, who wrote this letter to Timothy. Paul, the most godly man other than Jesus Christ, ever lived. And the question is, where does Paul get to stand? Where does Paul go on the continuum? Is he right next to Jesus? Three-fourths of the way? In the middle by the podium? Where does Paul stand? He He stands next to Hitler. And you and I do too. You and I do too. There's this gap, this chasm is fixed between the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that God requires for us to stand before him, and sinful humanity. That's where we stand, even in our holiest, most sanctified moments. And here's the amazing thing about the mediating work of Jesus. At his baptism, Jesus said that he had come to fulfill all righteousness, to obey perfectly everything written in God's law. And so Jesus never sinned. Jesus never gossiped about a friend. Jesus never spoke unkindly to an inconsiderate customer service representative. Jesus never entertained a lustful thought. And as he's doing that, Jesus isn't merely obeying for himself alone, but he's obeying for his people He's keeping the commandments for us as our representative and as our mediator. You see, Jesus had to come as a man to live to be the second Adam. 
A little bit later in Romans 5, in verse 19, Paul says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, because by Adam's disobedience we were all made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And here's the amazing thing. Christ's obedience gets credited to you in the gospel so that you get a new status. In God's sight, you're not standing over there by Hitler anymore. You're standing over here next to Jesus. Now, that's not who you are really. That's the status that you've been given by faith. You don't get to actually stand over here in reality until your glorification. That's another sermon for another time. The point is, Christ gives you his righteousness. He declares you righteous so that your status puts you over here. The Heidelberg Catechism says this really well in questions 35 and 36. Question 35 says, What does it mean that he, Jesus, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? And the answer is that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a truly human nature so that he might also become David's true descendant like his brothers and sisters in every way except for sin. Now here's the question, 36. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator. And in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sinfulness in which I was conceived. That's the free gift of faith to be declared righteous in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know what amazing Christmas present you're going to get this year. I don't know what you put on your list, but you will never receive a gift that's better than that. You need a mediator who is a man because you need a righteousness to present to God that you cannot furnish on your own. So stop trying to present your righteousness to God. This Christmas, let's repent not just of our sin, but of our righteousness, of our trying to be good in our own strength. You need the righteousness of your mediator, and it's been given to you. He's fulfilled all righteousness for you. Theologians call this Christ's active obedience. And having that obedience credited to you is your only hope to stand before God. So how do we get it? How do we receive the benefits of Christ's active obedience? This leads to our last point. We need a mediator to die for us. We get the benefits of Christ's active obedience through what theologians call his passive obedience. His passive obedience is his paying of our debt of sin through his suffering and his death. His death is his passive obedience. And just as Jesus stands in our place as our representative head, living a life of obedience to God, he also stands in our place offering himself to suffer the penalty of our sins on the cross. Jesus had to be fully human to be our mediator, to be like us in every way so that he could bear the curse of sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, For our sake God made he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's what that means. On the cross, God made Jesus, the sinless man, to become sin. God treated Jesus as though he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe in him. 
And though Jesus was holy and righteous and perfectly obedient to God, God treats him as though he lived my life. For all the times that I've gossiped and lied and treated people like they didn't matter and yielded to sinful temptation, Jesus was crushed under the weight of God's judgment for that sin. God treats Jesus as though he had lived my life. And then, in the same way, God treats me as though I had lived the perfect life Jesus lived, the life without sin. He treats me as though I had lived Jesus' life. Theologians call this double imputation. Christ's righteousness to me, my sin to Christ. Martin Luther called it the great exchange, my filth for Christ's purity. Christ gets what I deserve, holy, unrelenting, righteous wrath, and I get what Christ deserves, acceptance, wholeness, adoption, and love. We need a mediator to die for us. And if that sounds, brothers and sisters, if that sounds too good to be true, if that sounds like it's a myth, C.S. Lewis said that in, in the incarnation, when Jesus comes to earth, the myth becomes a fact. The ideal steps into the real. And if you're in Christ, God really does love you like that. He really does. Let me show you that. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus propitiates God's wrath against us. That means He absorbs it. He bears God's wrath away. He takes it instead of us. Some of your translations will say he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And that carries the same sense. And it would have made John's readers hearken back to the old covenant sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, God made a way in his mercy for his people to deal with their sins, to stay in relationship with him through the sacrificial system. And this whole sacrificial system would culminate on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, The priest would slaughter a goat and they would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat as a symbol of blood covering the penalty for the sins of the people. But then they would take a second goat. And Aaron, the high priest, would lay his hands on the goat and he would confess the sins of the people of Israel. Symbolically, the guilt of the people would be transferred to the goat. And then they would take that goat and they would chase it out of the camp. All the people would run after it, chase it outside the camp and send it off in the wilderness to die. The second goat symbolically bears away the sins of the people. And God spent centuries dealing with his people in this way, but there's a problem that persists there, and it's an obvious one, and it's this. The blood of animals can't take away the guilt of sin. That's what Hebrews 10 tells us. Offering an animal sacrifice for the weight of your sin against the God of the universe is like my kids offering to use their allowance money to pay down the national debt. The debt is too great. The demand is too high. We needed a greater sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats to deal with our debt of sin. We needed a mediator, one who is fully man but perfect without sin. We needed the man Christ Jesus. 
Hebrews 9 and 10 is a New Testament interpretation of the Old Covenant in light of the finished work of Christ. In Hebrews 9, 15, it says this, Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called, that's you and me, may receive the promised inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And that is what Jesus did in dying for us. On the cross, Christ hangs between heaven and earth, standing between holy God and sinful humanity, and he bridges the gap. His blood that's offered without spot or blemish, because he was the one righteous man, seals the new covenant, and all of its benefits, all of its promises are given to us. Restoration, transformation, forgiveness, righteousness, the cleansing of our conscience, fellowship with God. All the blessings of the new covenant are ours. And all we have to do to get it is to receive it with the empty hands of faith. We need a mediator. We need a mediator to live for us. We need a mediator to die for us. I was talking with Karen Olfson this week. Karen is the executive director of the Tallahassee Biblical Counseling Ministries, which offers counsel from Scripture to people who are struggling and need help. And Karen told me that every year around the Christmas season, the number of calls they get of people looking for help increases exponentially. And that's because this is a season where we feel in an acute way this gap between the ideal and the real. We feel our separation. We long for home. We long for a world where we are fully known and fully loved. I just want to ask you, what if Christmas was a message to you from God that a mediator has come to bridge the gap that's fixed between you and God. A mediator has come to give his life so that you could be fully known in the midst of your brokenness and yet fully loved by God. See, we get, we get jammed up on this so often because we look at our circumstances and we say, if God loves me, why do I hurt so bad? If God loves me, why am I struggling so much in my marriage? If God loves me, why am I Why am I stuck in these patterns of sin? Well, the problem with that is we're looking to the wrong thing. The life and death of Christ, your mediator, is the definitive sign and symbol of God's love for you. That's what love is. It's it's willing self-sacrifice for the good of the beloved. This week was the fifth anniversary of the terrible terrible day when a shooter went into Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut and began to fire on children and students. And Jake Tapper from CNN posted on Twitter the names and the pictures of the 26 victims who died that day, 20 children and six adults. And among those adults were Victoria Soto, who was the first grade teacher who, when the shots began to ring out, ushered her students into a closet and then placed her body between them and the shooter and died protecting the students that she loved. 
Also among them were the school's behavioral specialist, Rachel Devino, the principal, Don Hawksprung, and the psychologist, Mary Sherlock, who, as soon as they heard the gunfire, left the safety of the office where they were seated and ran toward the fire and valiantly gave their lives, attempting to stop the shooter. They died for the children that they loved. What kind of love moves a person to give their life for another? To stand between their beloved and their destruction. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of love that Jesus Christ has for you. He received the wrath of God in your place. He is the only mediator who is available to you, whose whose work can avail for you. And he is the only mediator you will ever need. And this week, between now and Christmas Eve, I just want to invite you to allow yourself to feel the weightiness, the the brokenness of this gap between the ideal and the real. Allow yourself to feel that distance and to feel that weight. And then look up and see the Savior, the mediator who came to live and to die for you and to bring you to God because he loves you. My prayer for us this week is that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding this Christmas. And in knowing it, we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray.